had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Christian, and I'm so excited to be here today. Um, but before we jump in, I do have to address the elephant in the room. Yes, my name is Christian. Yes, I am a Christian. Yes, I work at the Christian Life Center, and yes, I attended Bethany Christian School for about eight years. Uh, I don't have a problem. I think God has a sense of humor. Um, I'm so glad to be here sharing with you guys today. I'm Christian Hessling. I actually started attending here, for those of you who don't know me, started attending here in 05 uh, as a sixth grade student, grew up here in the youth ministry, then went away for college and grad school, and joined back in the congregation this last summer. In fact, I have a picture to show you guys. This is from 09. Uh, this is Project Drake, uh, and on the right is me as a ninth grader, and on the left, that is actually my wife. We would start dating about three years after that, and we would get married in 2016. So uh, it's just kind of, I stumbled upon that the other day. I'm like, wow, that was so long ago. Um, but anyway, I'm so glad to be here on the stage. Uh, let me tell you what, in a million years, I would have never thought that my first sermon at the Christian Life Center would be between myself and a camera. <laughs> I never in a million years pictured it, but this is the season we are in. Um, this is your chance. You can talk back to me, and I won't know. You can uh, say, you know, boo, or I don't agree with you, or hey, that's a really good point. You can sleep. You can eat. You can do whatever you want, and we don't know, so I invite you. Have fun. Enjoy yourself. Do all that stuff, whatever you'd like to do. We're just really, really glad that you guys are here. As you know, we're kind of in a weird season. Um, we're, we're trying to navigate this pandemic. As a staff, we've been kind of like wrestling with how do we do church uh, in a world that we can't share the same space together? How do we navigate that stuff? And so I want to um, kind of invite you guys to hunker down for this season as we try and figure out, hey, what is it that, what is it, um, that we're doing? Um, while we're really sad that we do not get to see you guys in person, we're actually really glad that we have the capabilities of connecting online. So um, with that, we're so glad that you're here. And we invite you, if you've not checked it out already, check out our website for more information. We try and post about every Tuesday and Friday some details or kind of updates about where we're heading as a church in this season. So you can visit us at clcfamily.church or you can visit us on Facebook. We're pretty good at uploading or kind of updating uh, on there. So visit us on Facebook by searching CLC Family. Um, and speaking of kind of updates, I do have one update that I wanted to share. We will not be having Family Promise this week. Family Promise actually decided to cancel, but if you did sign up to do a meal, um, they are still actually looking to do meals in some capacity. So I do invite you, if you want to learn a bit more details about that, check out the CLC Family Facebook page, uh, and you can and find out some more details. So today we are venturing towards Easter. I know this is probably the last thing that's on our minds right now, but that is where we're at, whether you like it or not. I was on Facebook er, uh, earlier this week, and I ran across a meme. It was hilarious. It said, I was not anticipating on giving up this much for Lent this year. And I feel like we're kind of all in that boat where we did not anticipate that we would be here. Like a couple of weeks ago, right, when we heard, originally heard about this virus, we did not anticipate being here, right? Um, but we are approaching Easter, quickly approaching it, right? And today I have the privilege of starting a series called The Hope of Easter. The hope of Easter, which I, I felt was really fitting for a season like this. Hope is the, the act of anticipating something good that's coming. And I think hope is most powerful and profound when we're in seasons of turmoil, seasons of confusion, seasons of uh, doubt. And so I think this series hopefully will, will be really fitting for the season that we're in. 
Because as a people who are experiencing pain, as a people who experience turmoil, as a people who wrestle with doubt and confusion, we have the opportunity, we have the ability to be hopeful. And so, um, and so any, and I believe any possible situation in life, we truly believe in the face of all things, death, uh, confusion, brokenness, shame, injustice, we have the ability to be hopeful. And so our hope in this series is to unpack a little bit about what this means for us, uh, what it means to be hopeful in life, right, when we are faced with some difficult circumstances, right? Um, so today, I actually have uh, the privilege of talking about the triumphal, uh, the triumphal entry, um, which is often done on Palm Sunday, but I feel like with the way that things have been in the world, we've like thrown away our calendar like weeks ago um, in the wake of everything that's been happening. Like, what is today? I don't know, right? And so um, usually it's done on Palm Sunday, but we're doing it a little bit earlier, so I hope you guys are cool with that. Um, and this is how we're going to start. Um, we've kind of come to the understanding that there is a void uh, in, in the community right now. There's a void in our inability to meet together. And so, and we especially uh, identify that with our young congregants, the kids. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to play a video that they would have watched um, if we were in the building today. Um, but we're going to play it on the screen for them to watch. So you can corral them up right now, bring them together, holler down the hall, and I will wait for as long as it takes. Okay, I'm done. I'm sure that's probably as long as it took for you to corral them together. Um, but what we're going to do is I'm going to pray, uh, and then we're going to play that video about the triumphal entry. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you're a good God. We enter this series on hope today in a world that doesn't seem very hopeful. We enter this conversation about Easter, what it means for God to bring about redemption and re restoration in life in a world where that doesn't seem very prevalent. So we pray, God, may these words not be mine. May they be yours, and may you speak to us in some capacity today. We love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So here, check out this video on the triumphal entry. It was time to celebrate Passover. Many Israelites had traveled to Jerusalem to remember what God had done when he rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. Jesus and his disciples traveled to Jerusalem too. When they neared Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead into a village. As soon as you enter the village, Jesus told them, you will find a young donkey tied there. No one has ever sat on it. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. The disciples did as Jesus asked. As they untied the donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought the donkey to Jesus, threw their robes onto the donkey, and helped Jesus get on it. People spread their robes along the road, and others spread palm branches cut from the fields. The whole crowd of disciples praised God with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. The king who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Hosanna! The word Hosanna means save now. The people believed Jesus was their promised king and they hoped he would save them from Rome. Some of the religious leaders said, Teacher, tell your disciples to be quiet. Jesus answered, 
If they did not praise me, the rocks would praise me. While Jesus was in the temple complex, people who were blind and people who were lame came to him. The blind and lame were not allowed to worship in the temple. Jesus healed them. Other religious leaders saw Jesus' miracles and heard the children saying, Hosanna to the son of David, or our king is here. They were angry and asked Jesus, Do you hear these children? They are saying you are a king. Yes, Jesus replied. The psalmist said, You have prepared praise from the mouths of children and nursing infants. Jesus left them and went to the town of Bethany to spend the night. During Jesus' triumphal entry, the people welcomed him as king. Jesus was the Messiah spoken about by the prophet Zechariah. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. One day, Jesus will return to earth on a white horse as king over everything. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I do invite uh, you guys to pay attention to Facebook. I'm pretty sure I think our children's ministry team actually posts some discussion questions and things to correlate um, with that video. So keep an eye on Facebook. Um, so we're at the triumphal entry, which is a big deal. But I don't think you can have the triumphal entry without one thing. Confetti, right? Confetti. You need confetti at every triumphal entry. In today's world, when you celebrate things, this is so exciting. Y'all, I was at Walmart today. This is, I'm going to get sidetracked for a second. I was at Walmart today. Uh, I went this morning and bought uh, these canisters of confetti. Uh, and I was walking out, and the, the lady looked at me like, why are you buying eight canisters of confetti in a pandemic, right? Like, don't you need toilet paper, right? And I just kind of thought to myself, like, this is all the paper I need, right? Just confetti paper, right? Um, so I don't think you can have the triumphant entry, right, without confetti. In today's world, uh, when we celebrate a victory, when we celebrate uh, um, winning something or when someone wins a competition or when there's a surprise party, one of the things you have to have is confetti right? Because it marks that we are celebrating something, that we are victorious in some capacity, right? And so I figured it'd be fitting to bring confetti to the triumphal entry. And the reality is that this story of the triumphal entry gives us every reason in any season of life to be able to celebrate and pop confetti. And the hope is that during our time together today, that we'll kind of unpack why is it that in every season of life, we have this opportunity to party, to celebrate, to be victorious, right? And so that is our goal today. So today we're actually going to be turning to the Gospels, more specifically the Gospel of Luke. I love the Gospels. They give, uh, you know, four different perspectives on the same story. And I think when we read them uh, in conjunction with each other, we get a better understanding, a better picture of what it is that God is up to, right? And so we're going to be reading the Gospels today. But before we do so, I kind of want to highlight something that's important. I think a lot of times when we read scripture, we have the knack or the habit of reducing it to something less than what it is. Uh, we have the knack to maybe reduce it to good advice, right? We approach scripture and like this is, they have a lot of great one-liners that I can use in my life to shape my life. But I kind of want to push back against that notion today, especially as we, we're diving into this series about good news, right? This series about Easter. 
um, advice are sayings to help you reorder your life. However, there's a world of difference between advice and news. And N.T. Wright, when he, he talks about this difference between advice and news, because you see, news is something that has happened as a result of which a whole new set of possibilities has opened up. And so it could be good news, right? You know, an engagement, a wedding, a baby. could be really bad news. Loss, death, right? We see it in the news all the time when 9-11 happened. This event that happened that changed the realm of possibilities. Even now, today, we are in this pandemic, right? And we see it on the news all the time, COVID-19, this news that absolutely changes the realm of possibilities, right? And so I think that when we think good news about the, in the scripture, right, when we think good news, we ought to be thinking of the latter. Something has occurred that has opened up a whole new set of possibilities. And I think it's a more appropriate to view the gospel in such a way that this thing has happened that has changed everything forever. And so as we kind of jump into the scripture, I invite you, as you think about the gospel, don't just think about it as some, you know, really good story with good morals and good advice. But I want you to think about it as something that has happened, that has changed all possibilities for our life, right? And I want to talk about why it is that this story invites us to live differently. I want us to think about why this story opens up a whole new set of possibilities. And I totally understand that some of us watching today, some of you guys watching from home or wherever you might be, um, you might not be at a place where you buy into this yet. You might not be in a place where you buy into the gospel, where you, where you understand what God is doing. And I get that. I'm glad you're here just to journey with us. I'm really glad you're here. So I invite you to hold on for a couple of minutes. And I really hope that we can kind of paint a picture together of what it is that this means for our life, right? What whole new possibilities this opens up for us. So here we're in Luke 19. This moment where Luke is writing to an audience in a specific time, in a specific place, for a specific purpose. And what I want to do is kind of look behind the scenes to understand what is happening in this text and why is it, did, why is it that Luke wrote this text to these people in this time and ultimately to us, right? And so here we have Luke. He's a really smart dude. He was a physician. He was an educated urban man, and so he knows what he's doing. He's living in the city. He's understanding the problems of the city as well as the triumphs of the city, right? And he's very educated, and so he knows kind of the contours of it. Um, he's literate, meaning he can write and interpret and do all of these things. He's very sophisticated in Greek as well as Hebrew, and so here we have this really smart guy writing a book, right? Um, and this gospel that Luke writes is a gospel, as some scholars say, to this city. It's, a, it's an urban gospel where some stories may have been maybe more geared to rural or, um, uh, yeah, just rural audiences. Here, Luke is writing specifically um, to the people in the city. And again, this applies to all of us. Um, but when, as he's writing, he has these people in mind. Um, they were diverse ethnically, Jews and Gentiles, socioeconomically. Uh, his writing of this text came in the wake of a great war, the Roman-Jewish War in 70 AD. And so these are people facing persecutions. These are people who've experienced death, uh, people who are under incredible pressure from Rome. Uh, they're scattered across the land, so they've kind of lost a national identity. They've lost their home, right? And so these people know what it's like to suffer and to experience pain. And so the purpose 
The theme of this text uh, that, that Luke is writing is so that all people, Jews and Gentile, rich and poor, would understand the gospel. Again, the good news, right? This, this story that opens up a whole new set of possibilities. And imagine if you are a people experiencing trial, you'd want to pay attention to a story that changes all possibility, right? That changes um, the whole, it gives you a whole new set of possibilities. And so I know that's a lot of backdrop here. There's another confetti cannon to kind of lighten the mood. Woo, let's celebrate. Okay. Um, with these things in mind, we read today's text, Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. So we're going to at Luke 19, verse 28. And it reads, After he had said this, which is referring to a parable that he just taught verses ago, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany at the place called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Y'all, when I first read this, I was like, goodness gracious, this is the first documented account of Grand Theft Auto. Like here, Jesus is, and he's like saying, hey, you, there's a cult in this city. Go take it and bring it back here, right? Uh, I think he should have went with a Mustang. That's me personally. I'm kidding, of course. But here we are. Um, Jesus predicts that there's a, this cult in the city. So he goes into this, they go into the city um, to retrieve it. And there's something special to note here. It says the cult's not been ridden before. And a cult, uh, in some commentaries say, um, this was just a young donkey, maybe less than four years old. And so it's smaller maybe than a full-grown donkey. Uh, and Jesus is inquiring about this cult. Uh, and it's important to note, it says this, this, this cult's not been ridden before. It's, it's still in the stall, right? It's not been ridden before. And I think there's some significance to this. It implies that there's kind of a purity to this animal that has not, um, not been ridden before, right? Um, and... Um, and it's almost as if it were reserved for a sacred task. So here we have, they're going into the city, uh, and they're getting this colt. And I also have to ask, like, I ask the question, why, why is Jesus asking for a colt? Like, are his legs tired? Does he not want to walk? Like, he's most of the way to Jerusalem, so why is it that they get a colt right now? Like, it just doesn't make sense. And is it kind of selfish for him to say, like, hey, get me a colt. Don't worry about yourself, right? Like, I don't know, right? But here we have the story. They're walking. And he says, let's, let's go get this colt. And so the passage continues. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So there's a lot happening here. I want to camp out here for a minute or two to talk about what is happening here. So they left, and they found things as Jesus, exactly as Jesus said. They found this colt that was tied up, and then, um, and then some two owners came out and asked, hey, why are you untying the colt? And I love this response. It's like, just tell them the Lord needs it. Like, imagine trying to use that today. You're at Walmart. There's one piece, you know, one pack of toilet paper, and you grab, and you're like, the Lord needs this. Like, you know, it wouldn't fly today, and I don't want you to go and turn your TVs off and say, what a great sermon. I have my advice. I'm going to go to Walmart right now. Don't do that. It's not what I'm saying. Hear me out. In this moment, Jesus is predicting what is happening, and he's got it like right to the T, right? 
And it, it shows a little bit about who this Jesus guy is. Like, oh gosh, like that's pretty profound that he actually knew that. And so they go, they untie this colt, and they bring it back to Jesus. So that's the first thing, is, is this idea that, wow, there's, there's, there's a new understanding of, you know, Jesus is revealing himself here by kind of through this prophetic notion, right? Secondly, the second thing to note that is important um, is, again, Jesus could have walked. Um, he wasn't terribly far from Jerusalem. So why is it that he decided, hey, I need a colt right now, right? And a, and a, young, a young donkey, right? Um, they were so used to walking. So why is it that they're doing this? Many scholars in this moment, and Luke's readers would have understood this. There's a passage in Zechariah that actually talks about this. Here, 500 years ago, we have Zechariah, who's a prophet. And he's writing to the Israelites who are experiencing turmoil and pain, right? And he's saying to them, just wait. There will be someone from the Davidic line, which Jesus is, who will come, redeem, and restore you. And so let's, I could summarize that, but I'm going to read it real quick. It's Zechariah 9.9. It reads, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This passage is of great importance, not just because we see it being fulfilled here in Luke 19, but it paints a picture of, of who God is. It paints a picture of who God is because, you know, this is how the king is going to ride into town on a donkey. Most often in the ancient world, kings became powerful through great uh, conquests, through beating their enemies, through winning in war and doing these powerful things, oftentimes weren't terribly ethical things, but they would often come to power by war or something of the sort, right? And so... This is how Jesus decides to come in town. It says your king comes righteous and victorious, not by war, not by doing these incredible profound things, but hey, guess what? He's going to be riding a donkey, a colt, a baby donkey, right? Um, and most, in this context, most kings would have become kings through war and stuff like that, as I had mentioned, right? Um, they'd come, become kings through victory. Um, and actually, I think it's really funny that this happens because have you ever seen a video of a grown man ride a donkey? I actually, when I was writing this, I spent way too much time looking at videos of grown men riding donkeys. Uh, you can do that on your own time if you want, um, but it's kind of humiliating. It's a, it's a really weird picture, weird image. Like, I can imagine people are like, why does he want to ride into town on a donkey, right? But let's dive a little deeper. The donkey was actually an animal associated with the common people, and so here we have Jesus riding into town on a donkey, which is an animal that most of the middle to lower class um, would have been very familiar with. And so here Jesus is riding to town, almost identifying with this group of people, right? Uh, and donkeys as well are associated with peace and humility. They were not used for war. Horses, on the other hand, were used for war, which makes sense because the last animal that I would want to ride into a battle is a donkey. I'd rather ride a horse. In fact, here's a picture of Mel Gibson on a horse. I can imagine that most awesome kings in that time looked a bit like this. Really awesome and powerful, and they look like they just destroyed a whole army, right? But, but the king of the kings decides to take another method. In an ancient world ravaged by war, fighting, and bloodshed, Jesus rides in on a donkey. 
He had a different mode of transportation, not one of power, not one of dominion, not one of rule, but rather one of peace and humility. It probably would have looked a bit more like this. I was in class once, and one of my professors actually said that um, a lot of depictions of Jesus on the donkey entering the town might not be terribly uh, accurate. Um, since it's a young donkey, there's a very good chance that his feet would drag on the ground as he rode into town. This is our king. This is our king riding on a donkey. He's not just riding on a donkey because his legs are tired. Rather, Jesus is trying to paint a picture of not only who God is, but, but what God is up to. Because anyone familiar with the Old Testament in this time would have saw this image of this king riding into town on a donkey, and they would say, this is it. Oh my gosh, Zechariah wrote about this 500 years ago. Here we have this king who's coming in on a colt, a young donkey. This is it. This is our time of redemption. God's going to save us from Rome. God's going to save us from oppression. God's going to save us from death. All of these things, right? They would be thinking these things because they'd be very familiar with that passage. And so I can imagine that maybe there's some confusion too. I'm not sure why Jesus chose a donkey, <laughs> right? I mean, I know the, the prophecy said about it, but like, couldn't have God have chosen a, a horse or something more powerful that would look cool? Like, Rome's going to look at this and laugh, right? Caesar's going to look at this and laugh. But, you know, it doesn't matter. We're going to be freed from Rome. All of our trials are done. Let's celebrate. I'm loving popping this confetti, by the way. Um, I'm going to leave this here for weeks. I'm just kidding. I won't do that. Um, but they'll celebrate anyway. They might not understand why it is that God chose a donkey. They might not understand why it is that God's going about this. But what they do think to themselves is, this is it. We're going to be redeemed and restored. This is what the prophecies talked about, right? So let's continue. Verse 36. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. Hmm. It's a strange thing to do. Why would they do that? So, when people did this, uh, this would actually symbolize crowds submitting to Jesus as king. Uh, we see this uh, in other instances um, in Scripture. It was done when royal figures were greeted or welcomed. Husbands, I'm sure you're very familiar with this, because I know every time it rains outside, and, and your, your wife's getting out of her car door, I know you probably, you know, you've done this before. You put your jacket on the ground, and then she jumps all over it, and then walks off, and you pick up your jacket. So I'm sure you're very familiar with the process. I'm sure you've done it many, many times. So you guys know what I'm talking about, right? So here, um, they would just put their cloaks on the ground as a symbol of welcoming a royal figure, right? So here they are welcoming the king, uh, the king of kings, right? Uh, I'm going to turn to another gospel real quick. As I said earlier, the gospels all kind of provide different perspectives on the same story here. And so what I want to do is actually turn quickly to Mark 11, 8, because it adds a little more to this moment. So in Mark 11, 8, it says, Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they cut in the fields. Palm leaves. We're very familiar with palm leaves. This is what it is in this moment. This is why we get the name Palm Sunday, right? The laying and the waving of palms was a common practice in the ancient world to welcome home a king or a war hero. One commentary that I read actually said it's, it's as if you're rolling out the red carpet. 
for a very important person, right? There's instances in history where we see this unfold in Jerusalem. Uh, in some other books of the Bible, we see when people come into town, uh, when they've just finished a battle, when they've won a war, they get a welcome with palm leaves, right? In fact, I read about this. I thought this was interesting. I never knew this. The last account of this happening in Jerusalem was actually less than 200 years ago. In 1834, there was a political leader um, who was entering Jerusalem during a time of distress, and he was welcomed with palm leaves. In ancient Jewish culture, these branches symbolized nationalism and victory. So when people saw palms, they knew something, someone important was here. They knew something big was about to happen. Because it implies victory. It implies that someone is coming to save us and redeem us and restore us, right? And so they knew something was up. And so let me kind of summarize what we've covered up until this point. So here we are. The king of all kings is riding a donkey, an animal representing peace. And he's riding it towards Jerusalem. And people are honoring him as they would a king. They are honoring him as they would a war hero, as a mighty general in battle, right? Or a triumphant champion, if you want to call it that. Again, you got to think that this could be a bit confusing. Could they think Jesus is a war hero? You know? Do they know what Jesus is actually coming to Jerusalem to do? Maybe they're, they're confused because they think, hey, God's going to act in this way. God's going to do this for us, and this is going to be awesome. Let's worship. Let's bring all the palm leaves and all the cloaks that we have. And so I can imagine just this image, um, this victorious image, this triumphal entry, right? Jesus is coming in, and they think, he's going he's gonna to redeem us. He's going to save us from Rome. He's going to save us from oppression, right? But it's confusing when he's riding a donkey. Maybe they're thinking, oh, you know, Jesus is just riding a donkey because, you know, Jesus is a bit unconventional. You know, remember that time when he healed that guy and he used the mud? Like, why would he do that? Kind of confusing, right? Jesus is just being Jesus, right? You know how he is. And so, yes, they acknowledged he's the king, but what kind of king do they think he is? Whatever the case, they believe they have a reason to be triumphant, so insert the confetti cannons, right? They're excited. They're getting ready. Let's continue on. Verse 37. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of the power they had seen. This is interesting. This is, I think, where we get a more whole picture of why it is that these people are so excited. Why it is that they're throwing their palms and their cloaks down. Why it is that they're shooting confetti cannons, right? I think this gives us a picture because um, he's approaching Jerusalem here. And, and Luke's account of what is happening identifies what their matter of occasion or joy was. The reason why they were joyful and praising God was not because this is the king of kings, right? This is the son of God. No, but they were praising God. Why? Because for all the, pe the deeds and the power that they'd seen. Here they're praising this Jesus guy for what he has done, what he's been doing, right? In fact, in John's account, right before this story of the triumphal entry, we have the healing of Lazarus. And so in his account, he actually says the people are actually praising God because he just raised Lazarus from the dead. 
And so here we have this guy who's done all of these incredible miracles, and they are getting excited, right? I mean, this is the guy who brought people back from the dead, who turned a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish into a lot of bread and a lot of fish. This is the guy who walked on water, right? And I know some of you are thinking this one, and I know some of them probably thought this one. This is the guy that was at the wedding in Cana, and he turned water into wine, you know what I'm saying? And I know a lot of you guys are praying for that right now. I'm praying for you guys right now. Um, but this is, this is what they're looking at. They see this figure come into town, and they say, oh, this is the guy that's been doing all those incredible things. And imagine if he could bring a guy back from the dead. Oh my gosh, like, he could take care of our Rome problem. He could take care of our oppressors. He could deliver us from death. He could deliver us from persecution. He could make all things right, right? And so this is what they think. They praise him because of the things he can do. Because if he can do this, imagine what else he can do. The passage continues that they praise Jesus saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. So this passage, actually, um, a lot of people would have known this song. They're kind of singing a song right now. It comes from the 118th chapter of Psalms. And it's a hymn of royal entry that was sung during a royal enthronement. And so here, here's this new king, and they acknowledge Jesus as king, right? And so I want to pause and actually highlight and bring in another component from the book of Matthew. Again, gospel writers providing a whole picture of what is happening here. So let's turn to Matthew 21, verse 9. And his account of this instance says this, And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So here's an account of people crying out, Hosanna, right? When a person uh, had a, had a um, were, were inquiring to a king for help, they would say, Hosanna, or, uh, or as it's known in Hebrew, Hoshaya na. And what that means is they're saying, save. Save me now. We implore thee, save us now. So here in this moment, this king's coming into town. And they say, this king's capable of a lot. So, Hosanna, save us from Rome. Save us from oppression. Save us from our trials. Save us, Hosanna, right? Because if this guy can raise people from the dead... Surely he could take care of our problems. If this guy can heal people, then gosh, our problems must be very easy for him to accomplish. And so they get excited. They celebrate. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Save us, God. And so the passage wraps up. In verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Here it is again. This moment where Jesus is simply painting a picture of who he is. Because we have all these people crying, Hosanna, right? Save us. You're only allowed to ask Caesar to save you. But here all these people are turning their attention to this guy on a donkey saying, Save us. We implore thee, save us, right? And they're begging. And so here what Jesus is doing, he's, he's actually painting a picture 
of not only who he is, but what God is up to. Because you see, he's referencing rocks. He's referencing creation, earth, land. And so he's saying, I'm the king of the rocks. Just like I'm the king of the Jews. I'm king of the Gentiles. I'm king of the Romans. And yes, I'm king of the rocks. And so here this moment, he's painting a picture that he's not just another king. He's not just another war hero. He's not some triumphant warrior coming into town. What he's saying is, I'm a king. I'm the king of kings. And even if no one praised me, the rocks would. I'm king of all creation, of all things, of all people, which is a really profound statement. So here Jesus is making a bold statement saying he is the king of kings. That gets people killed you say that in a land where Caesar rules, right? And so he is declaring that. In other words, he's saying he's not like other kings, right? So Jesus is constantly giving the people new ways to see God. He's constantly trying to give us insight into what he is up to. Yet, I'm a little suspicious. I'm suspicious that these people aren't getting it, right? Because we see that they're praising God, not for him being the king of kings, for being the Lord of lords, but they're praising God because, man, this guy can do some incredible things, and if we can just journey with him, maybe he'll do incredible things for us. Maybe he'll save us from our trials, these hardships, right? So I don't know if they're fully understanding who it is that God is and what it is that God is up to when he enters Jerusalem. And so the passage finishes in verse 41. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. This is the triumphal entry and the king's weeping. In the Greek, we see at least two forms of this word in the New Testament. Uh, Etakrusen was used when Lazarus died, and this meant to shed silent tears, right? Um, but the, the word used here, in this case, we have the word eklasen, which means wept aloud. Basically, this is Luke's way of saying that Jesus is ugly crying here. He's on a donkey, riding into what should be a very triumphant moment, and he's crying. And why is it that he's crying? Because if anyone was to know what it would take for peace, if anyone knew the plan of God, it would be these people. If anyone was to know what God was up to, what God was doing, it should be these people. But in this moment, it's hidden from their eyes. They still don't get it. Jesus has journeyed with them for three years now, and they still don't understand why it is that he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we see that because they praise him for his works. They're yelling, Hosanna, save us from Rome. Come on, help us out. Deliver us from oppression, right? And they still don't get it. They just don't get it. Their king comes to town riding on a donkey, a symbol of peace. And yes, they treat him like a king. Yes, they praise him. However, they treat him like any other king. They worship him not for who he is, the son of God, right? But for what he can do for them. 
They worship him by crying out, Hosanna, begging that he would save them, not from their own sin and brokenness, right? We don't see that anywhere. In the context of the passage, if we're understanding what is going on, they are crying out, Hosanna, save us from Rome, from our trials, right? And so they just treated the king of kings like any other king. And they missed Jesus. And this leads to their destruction. This idea that the brokenness is out there. That we need to be delivered from this trial. We don't pay attention to the very brokenness in us. And so Jesus prophesies in this moment, like, and he weeps. He's just weeping over this city. Saying there's going to be a day when the temple is going to be destroyed. Children will die. And it's horrible. And we see it come to fruition in the year 70 AD, which is about 35, 40 years after this moment. That this comes to be, right? They just didn't understand. They didn't understand who it was that was in their midst. They didn't understand what it was that he was up to. But let me tell you what. They eventually understood. Uh, Just a few days later, the same group of people finally understood that they were wrong about Jesus. And Jesus isn't here to do what they expected. And so what happens? We see in Luke 23, 21. They yell, crucify him. Crucify him. If he's not here to fulfill my agenda, to do what I need to do in the way that I need it done, when I need it done, kill him. Take him away. Crucify him. So Jesus weeps because he understands what is about to unfold. Because his children, his very children, those who have been journeying with him, don't understand what it is that he's about to do. Because he knows he will be crucified in the coming days. Because they did not recognize the time of their visitation from God. Not another king, not another war hero or champion, but from God. This is the triumphant entry. It's not very triumphant, if you ask me. Here's the problem. I suspect, I suspect that their view of God was just too small. I expect that the, you know, expectations that they had for God, who God was, what he, he was here to do, were just really small. And out of their small view of God, and in their small view of God, they were asking for the wrong things, right? And they were projecting the wrong expectations for what it is that God was going to do. And I suspect, I suspect that I think we often do the same thing. That when we experience the trials and pains of life, our view of what God can do is just too small. And so, in our small view of God, we say, God, just like fix my problems. Come on, like fix my trial, my pain. Bring about joy take away this issue from me, just fix it, right? And I think we miss out on what God is doing, because in reality, God's plan was and is much more profound than anyone could have imagined, right? And we see this unfold. It was much bigger than anything we could conjure up. Again, he chose to ride in town on a donkey, so you know something's up, right? And I think our our view of God is just too small. And what we expect of God and what we want from God is just a little small. And so, I actually want to share a, a metaphor, but first I want to share a story. Um, I'll be honest, uh, about a week and a half ago, um, 
or a couple of weeks ago, we decided kind of the, the preaching order, uh, and I knew I'd be preaching this weekend. Um, about a week and a half ago, I was not wanting to preach this weekend. Um, about a week and a half ago, uh, so some of you who know me know a little bit about my story. My dad's been battling cancer for about two and a half years. Um, and as of recently, it's gotten pretty severe. Um, be honest, it has me pretty anxious, my family pretty anxious. Um, he was admitted to the hospital uh, two weeks ago almost. And since the pandemic is here, we actually can't visit him. Uh, they've locked down the hospitals, and there's very strict policy, absolutely no visitors. And gosh, it's been so hard because he's at a point in his journey where it's pretty unpredictable what will come in the next couple weeks. Um, actually just had a stem cell transplant um, this week, and so I actually invite you, pray for him. Um, and so, um, but we have the, I'm so thankful for technology because we've actually been able to FaceTime. So here's a picture actually of uh, me and my family, um, all FaceTiming from, you know, all over the place. I, um, but before they locked down the hospitals, I was able to visit my dad. Uh, and I was talking with him. I actually spent a good chunk of time with him. So I was really, really thankful for that. And when I was talking with him, I was like, Dad, you know, I'm, I'm scheduled to preach um, at the church. But, you know, I, I don't know if I want to because we really don't know what the next couple of weeks are going to hold, right? And so um, he kind of said, he stopped. And he's like, no, preach. Do it. Go to church. Teach. I want to watch. So my dad's actually watching this now. Dad, I love you so much. Um, so much. So thanks for telling me to be here. Um, but anyway, he's continuing in his journey um, with cancer. Uh, and again, it's pretty challenging. Uh, and I'll be very, very, very candid and honest. There are days when I cry out, Hosanna. God, just heal my dad. <laughs> Come on. Make things right. Heal my dad. Help his body respond to the medicine in the way that it should. Help the medicine do what it needs to do, right? Heal my dad. Take away the cancer. Do whatever you can. Just heal my dad, right? And so I cry out, Hosanna, save us. Save him, right? But then there are days out of frustration, I'm tempted to shout, crucify, out of anger and pain because I don't get what God is doing. I understand why my dad's in this situation, right? And so I'm tempted to shout, crucify, because I don't understand your plans. I don't like what is happening right now. Crucify, right? However, I'm reminded of a metaphor that uh, a college professor taught me in college about, um, about what God's plan is. Um, it enables us to maybe see a bit more about what God is up to, and this is it. One of my professors put it this way. Sin, our brokenness, basically, you know, as Josh would say, um, it's our choosing our plan over God's plan, right? Is best compared to a disease, it's a disease and symptoms are the decisions that we make to not love our neighbor and to not love God. So you can call it cheating, uh, slandering your neighbor, um, dishonesty, uh, you know, material greed, keeping to ourselves where others maybe don't have some, right? Um, we do these things, these, these decisions that we make that create pain, right? Symptoms breed pain. And so... In the thick of our pain, in a world that's full of pain, full of people making decisions that have collateral damage and injure and hurt other people, right? In a world of pain, we then turn to, naturally, you know, painkillers, something to numb the pain, something to get rid of the pain, right? 
And so we ask God, God, save us. Save us from our pain. Save us from this discomfort. Save us from the pains of the world. Take our oppressors. Take away our, our oppressors. Take away these circumstances of pain. And we even try to take things into our own hands, right? Maybe through financial security or pleasure or fame, power, material wealth, right? Because if God's not going to do it, I might as well take care of it, right? And so in these moments of pain, we try and take care of it ourselves. And we make these demands of God, and when he doesn't do what we want him to do, when he doesn't do it when we want him to do it, and if he doesn't do it how we want him to do it, we then start to yell, crucify. Get out of my way. I will take care of this myself, right? And we beg God to take away the pain. And I don't want to, I think that's not a bad request to make. I think when we hurt, I truly believe that God hurts. I think when we're mourning, I truly believe that God is with us mourning, right? And we see it in Scripture, this idea that in the valley, God is there. And so I truly believe when we're experiencing these things, it's okay to cry out, Hosanna, like, God, just save me from these circumstances. Do something. Please help me in this moment, right? But I want us to make sure that that's not the end of our inquiry, the end of our crying out, Hosanna. I don't think it's a bad request to, to ask God to deliver us from this pain. But sometimes I think it's a request that's just a little too small. Because painkillers do not take care of the cancer. They merely numb the pain while the cancer continues to be cancer underneath and as it continues to kill the body. God has come to take care of the cancer itself. Our sin and our brokenness, right? Our choosing our way over God's. God has come to take care of the cancer itself. And God's plan, you could call it chemotherapy, doesn't take away all the pain. It, during my dad's journey, uh, sometimes chemotherapy would hurt him more than the cancer did. So sometimes God's plan doesn't necessarily mean that we will go through life unscathed. It doesn't mean that we will experience joy and bliss at all times. But what it does mean is that he's actively redeeming and restoring everything in every situation. What it does mean is that God is actually with us, promises to be with us. And again, I do believe that God mourns with us when we experience pain. But God has come here ultimately to take care of not the symptoms, but the root of the issue, which is the disease, right? And so naturally, his plan is a bit different than ours. Naturally, uh, his way of doing things is different than ours and always with our best interest in mind. God doesn't merely want to help the pain. God wants to give his life. And to life to the fullest, right? Even in death, we see God bring about total restoration. And that's what God is trying to do. And we see Jesus do this in his journey to Jerusalem. We see him do it all the time. In fact, you see those moments where he's doing miracles and he's healing people. Uh, and then a lot of times you hear him say, your sins are forgiven. He's treating the symptoms, but then he's also saying, there's a bigger problem here that we're going to take care of. And it's the fact that there is a divide between man and God because of the fallenness of man. And so here, I'm going to help treat the symptoms, but I'm here primarily for the disease. And so he often says, he does the healing, right? And he says, your sins are forgiven, right? Thanks to the work of Jesus as he enters Jerusalem weeping, 
journeying to the cross to take our place, and he's raised from the dead on the third day, we are beneficiaries of the profound plan that God has to restore all that is broken and to commune with us forever. It's a better plan than I could have written up, right? That God is here to restore and redeem everything that is broken. And so now we kind of live in the tension of a world that still experiences the collateral damage of each other's brokenness, of these symptoms, these decisions we make to love ourselves more than others, to love ourselves more than God. And so we still experience these pains, but, but we believe that God is, God has, and God is continuing to restore everything that is broken. And he invites us into this process. So I'm a pragmatic person. Uh, as a youth pastor, um, I'm always trying to figure out, hey, what are some like tangible takeaways we can give the students um, to help them on their journey in this lesson, right? Uh, and a lot of times, they're awesome. I love the students in the CLC, by the way. Um, they're really honest. If they're like, that's so confusing, Christian, I'll like be like, okay, okay, I understand. Um, but they're awesome, so shout out to the high school students and the middle school students. Um, so I'm a pragmatic person. I like to have kind of like, hey, you know, okay, this is nice and all, Christian, but what do we do from here? Where do we go, right? And so I just kind of wrote up three, uh, three kind of points, and you can add to them. You could take away whatever you want to do. You know your story better than I do, so if there's something that you know you need to do, go ahead and write it down, right? Um, but these are three recommendations that I would make in the wake of this profound story of what God is doing. And the first thing is this, have big hope. A lot of times we just say have hope. That's nice and all, but sometimes, again, our view of God is just a little too small. Have big hope. Have big expectations that God is doing some profound things, that God is up to something in all circumstances in the middle of this pandemic, in the middle of whatever you are experiencing, in the middle of my dad's diagnosis. I don't understand it, but I truly believe that God's doing something. And I think we're tempted to throw in the towel when we don't understand it or when we don't have the blueprint of what exactly God is doing. But I want to challenge you, don't have such a small view of God. Have big hope. And again, it's a future-oriented action here that we especially profess in these moments of disbelief, in these moments of confusion, right? So have big hope. Know that God is up to something that is beyond your wild, wildest imaginations. That God is doing something right now, right? The second thing is to cry Hosanna. Y'all, I don't like crying that much. Uh, and I'm sure some of you are in the same boat. Um, but it's a good thing to do. So cry Hosanna. Cry out to God. That God would save us not simply from the symptoms of the world's brokenness but from our own sin and our own brokenness, right? And our own selfishness. Continually invite God to redeem and restore every part of your life. Cry out to him. And then the last thing is simple. We have a reason to celebrate. We have a God whose plan to become king of kings was to ride into town on a donkey and die. And then three days later, the hope of Easter, Sunday, right? He beats death itself. So we have reason to party. The last point, throw some confetti, y'all. <laughs> Grab some close friends, family, and celebrate together. Tell others there's a reason to celebrate. We have a hope that is beyond belief here, right? That God is doing and is continuing to do some incredible things. We are deeply loved by a profound God. God has made a way where there's no way. God brings life out of death and invites us to participate in eternal life, right? 
This is the good news, right? News that opens up a world of new possibility. And so, we triumph, we celebrate, and we pop some confetti. Because we have every reason in the world to. Not many people can sit in the middle of their pain and say that they have every reason to celebrate. And I know there's some moments um, where it's, a, it's good to mourn. It's healthy and it's important. In fact, I think uh, grieving and mourning are tools that God has given us to journey through pain with other people. And so I understand there are moments where we need that mourning and grief. We need those moments to cry out Hosanna. But in all situations, we know we can pop a confetti cannon because we know how the story ends. And we know that God is doing incredible things behind the scenes. So what we're going to do is I'm actually going to pray us out. um, And then we're going to cut to a clip of the band. They're going to sing a song called Hosanna um, by Carrie Job. Really good song. And I want to invite you. Wherever you're at, if you're at home watching this, if you're in the car, um, do what you need to do. Whether it's sitting down and praying, just thinking of your own life, like where am I, where's my view of God too small? Um, Maybe you want to stand up and sing and shout the lyrics, please do so. Cry out Hosanna, right? Uh, Or if you just need to lay down and, and just listen to the song. Whatever you need to do, we want to invite you to enter this space and to lean into what God might be trying to reveal to you. So, let us sing this song together. Hey, y'all. So, actually, I forgot to pray. So, um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're such a good God. Even when I don't understand it, even when I'm tempted not to believe it because of my circumstances, even in those moments where I'm just tempted to shout, crucify God, Please encounter me in those moments. Encounter us in those moments and enable us to have big hope in really dire situations because you are a God of big hope. You are a God of profound plans. And so we thank you so much for that. God, as we sing this last song, as we navigate this season as a church of what it means to do church together in a pandemic, God, we just pray that you reveal to us the ways that you're working. And when we don't understand, we pray that we would just continue singing Hosanna. And so in faith, And in joy and in celebration, we sing this song, Hosanna. Amen. Let's sing together. Would you please join us as we sing our last song?
so glad that you decided to turn on your TVs and your devices today to join us. Uh, we know it's a little hard to connect with you guys while we're not here in the same space, so there's a couple ways that you can do that. Um, if you need prayer, please 
please, please email us at info at clcfamily.church. Um, we still have the means to pray and to do these things, and so we invite you to consider doing that. If you have anything that you need prayer for, email us there. Um, and if you just need someone to talk to, please don't hesitate to reach out. Info at clcfamily.church. Uh, in addition, um, we want to keep the conversation going. Um, we believe church is, of course, more than the weekends. And so we have a couple opportunities during the week to connect, especially in a world where we have to stay more than six feet away from each other. Um, we have an overtime podcast on Tuesdays at noon. Uh, and you can tune into that and you could submit questions. If you have a question about the service or the sermon, uh, send it in. You can send it to overtime at clcfamily.church and we will be talking about that Tuesday at noon. You can find us at the church website or on our Facebook page. Um, and in, in addition, we have Wednesday night devotionals since we can't connect together for Cal. Um, we have a new abbreviation for the time being, Connect Online Wednesdays. And so come join us online at 6.30 where one of our staff members will actually have a devotional for you to, to, to enjoy with your family. And so this is a really difficult season, but, but we remain hopeful that God is a God with big plans, that God is doing a profound work in a season uh, that seems maybe like he's not, or like pain is winning, or anxiety is winning. So I encourage you, have big hope. Um, celebrate with your family and cry out, Hosanna, at all times. We love you guys. Have a great week. Take care. Uh, just one question. Did you really need eight cannons? <laughs>